Hi, um, this is the fourth episode of our podcast for board diversity. In the first few episodes, we looked at firstly a global approach to board diversity, and we looked at how far we'd got to really um, internationally. We looked in the UK and we looked in California. We then looked at how in the second podcast, how diversity on boards was being achieved. And there's some great data that has been produced both in the UK and in California. And um, again, it's great to see how the um, California approach has achieved similar results to the UK, but in a much shorter period of time. Um, And uh, is now moving forward in a way that the UK is, in my view anyway, is looking to California and the US to how to move this forward again. And then in our third podcast, we looked at the drivers for change to diversity on boards. And um, one of those drivers we looked at, interestingly, was talking about how individuals themselves can help achieve improved diversity on boards. We did identify a couple of drivers, which included uh, executive recruiters and uh, stakeholders themselves, the investment bodies that were um, voting off chairs and saying we're not going to invest in this organisation unless it shows the right diversity within the leadership. And today we have got a a fantastic guest speaker who's going to be joining um, Terry and myself, uh, Olivia Morgan, who um, I'll hand over now to Terry to introduce. Terrific. Thank you, Emma. And uh, and hello, everyone. It's it's great to be back uh, back with you. I'm Terry Johnson. I'm a corporate partner at um, Arnold and Porter in San Francisco, and and uh, delighted to continue the podcast series with uh, with Emma on this topic that just becomes more and more important every day. So today we are delighted to be joined by Olivia Morgan. Olivia is the co-founder and executive director of the California Partners Project. Over the course of her career, she has created, developed, and led a series of innovative programs to center currently marginalized voices in U.S. public policy and society. In 2016, Olivia established the Common Sense Media's Gender Equity is Common Sense initiative. This effort studied the impact of media on children's understanding of gender at every age and produced a related media evaluation rubric for content creators, parents, and Common Sense's own media reviewers. Previously, she worked with Maria Shriver for seven years as senior advisor to A Woman's Nation and managing editor of the Shriver Report, a series of book-length examinations bringing academic and on-the-ground expertise to exploring cultural transformation across multiple platforms and partnerships. Olivia is honored to have served on the President's Committee on the Arts and the Humanities and guided its creation of the National Student Poets Program under Michelle Obama's leadership. She currently serves on the boards of the San Francisco Day School, Youth Speaks, and the Alliance for Young Artists and Writers, and she lives in San Francisco with her husband, David, and their children. So welcome, Olivia. We're we're thrilled to have you here. Thank you so much for for taking the time. Uh, We're going to jump into questions in just a moment, but just to set the stage a little bit, because this is going to be part of what we'll be um, alluding to in our discussion today. As, as Em and I have talked about on, our, on the podcast, but just to briefly recap, California has laws on the books that require a certain number of women and members of underrepresented communities to be on the boards of California headquartered public companies. And specifically, the first law, which was passed in 2018 and signed uh, into law by then-Governor Jerry Brown, requires that each public company headquartered in California have at least one woman director by the end of 2019, 
scaling up to three women directors by the end of this year, 2021, uh, for a board with six or more directors, and that scales down as the boards are smaller. The Secretary of State has the ability to assess fines uh, for violating those, um, uh, those requirements. And similarly, last year in 2020, the legislature adopted and Governor Newsom signed into law a, a, a similar law that requires that uh, companies, again, public companies headquartered in California have at least uh, one director who is a member of an underrepresented community, which means a minority or someone who identifies as LGBTQ, and then again, scaling up uh, to more directors over the, the course of the next couple of years. So with that uh, introduction, I think we'll, we'll toss it into questions. And uh, Emma, I think you, you've got the, the first one. Indeed, thank you. I'm really keen to hear from Olivia. And uh, in particular, I'd love to hear about the California Partners Project and how you came to be focused on board diversity. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. It's great to spend morning with um, Terry and evening with Emma. <laughs> so the California Partners Project, well, as Terry said in that generous introduction, um, I come out of policy and politics. That's been my, my background and my career. And my, that's driven by an interest in progress and social well-being, specifically around gender equity and child well-being, which I would argue are fundamentally interconnected. In addition to those other things, way back in the day, I ran the Office of Federal Affairs for the state of California under then Governor Gray Davis. Um, and then, as you said, I did Women for Obama in the very earliest days of 2007, uh, which was, you know, following at that point, following Michelle Obama around the South Side and then to Iowa and chronicling her sort of transformation into the first lady that we all came to know and hold in such high regard um, and then got to work with her to create this National Student Poets Program. And then, as you said, worked with Maria Shriver for seven years when she was the first lady of California. So when Gavin Newsom looked to be headed to the governor's office, um, it was natural to talk with his wife of my friend and colleague, Jennifer Siebel Newsom, about how she might use her platform for the four to eight years that she would be afforded that stage. She is, if you don't know her, and I hope you do. She's a pioneer in recognizing gender stereotypes in the media and elevating the voices of women and girls. I was a huge admirer of her work. Uh, she's also a mom to four young kids, um, which is heroic in its own right. Um, the first thing she did when she came into, uh, when she moved to Sacramento with the new governor was change the title from first lady of California to first partner of California so that it's not gendered and it's ready for whoever next steps into that role. So together we launched the first, the, the California Partners Project. I think of that partners as a verb, not a possessive, but the California Partners Project with a dual mission of promoting gender equity and healthy whole children. Um, it's an independent 501c4 that's adjacent to the governor's office and works with the first partner's office within the governor's office um, to support her agenda. But we were a startup nonprofit. We launched into a pandemic, no less. And as anyone who uh, has 
started a, any endeavor knows it's very helpful to have defined, discrete, concrete goals. So we focused in our first two years specifically on gender equity on corporate boards and uh, for the Healthy Hold Children, um, the impact of screen overloads, gaming and social media on the mental health and general well-being of adolescents. And the focus on the gender equity in the corporate sphere really stemmed two reasons. Corporations and institutional investors are making such a huge difference and are increasingly significant actors in the policy space. And if they are going to be leading voices in our democratic and civil society, it makes sense to, to pay attention to who's at their helm how they're making those decisions. And then, as you said, California had this first in the nation law that we knew we would be held up as an example for better or worse gender mandates on boards. And we wanted to, as Californians, we wanted to support its success, see what we could do to make this law successful, and then also have a thorough and accurate understanding of its impact. So we could share that story and share the data with the um, other states and nations and academics who were lining up to understand it. That's terrific. And, and that, that, Olivia, that, that segues beautifully into the, the question I had for you, which was to, to kind of look at, the, at how the, the history, since it's now been on the books for, since for three years, yes, yeah. how the California board diversity law has played out in terms of compliance you know, we, we saw when the board diversity law was signed into effect, there was a lot of discussion about whether it would stand up to legal challenges, and some of those challenges have been filed. So I'm, I'm interested to hear, too, as to how you see that and if you're seeing anything that looks like a, like a backlash. Hmm. Well, in terms of the numbers, the direct, the measurable impact, really encouraging news out of California a significant increase in the number of women on California boards since the law passed almost exactly three years ago, actually, it was the end of October 2018. Um, California has added almost a thousand women to the state's 705, as of June 30th, public company boards. Um, and that number, we, we did a year over year, and you'd see the like number of women added in 2015, 2016, 2017, and then a huge spike in 2019. So we know that that really is uh, responsive to the law. So the number of seats held by women has more than doubled from 2018. Um, there's still over 400 seats to be filled by women by the end of this year to be in full compliance with the second sort of wave of the law, which as you said, is three women for boards of six or more. If all companies were to comply with the law fully um, and their board sizes remain the same, there would be over 2000 women on California's boards in uh, 2022. There were um, just over 750 when the law was passed in 2018. Just quickly, like if for a thousand women, if you, you know, the average board compensation is around $250,000. So that's one small measure is $250 million a year going into the hands of um, women that, that weren't before, which is maybe a drop in the bucket for um, the corporate world, but isn't totally chump change, you know, in terms of how women spend their money and not to get too sidetracked into the weeds, but they do 
tend to spend their money more in their communities and on their families. That's the a great all, point. Yeah, the all mail board, which was about 30% of boards in California is a thing of the past. It's now about 1% of boards are still all mail. About half of California companies are all set for the 2021 gender requirements. They've already met them. Um, and the rest have one or two uh, left to go. And the great hope is what, what, to your question about the litigation, whatever happens, and I'm, you're probably better equipped to answer it than I, because I am not a lawyer. I do hear frequently from Senator Hannabeth Jackson, the author of the legislation, who has very strong opinions about the legality and what should happen in the courtroom. But whatever happens, we're confident that it will fuel the flywheel, that the what prevented women from being added to boards for so, so, so many years. And before we had a law, we had a resolution in California, which did not have an effect. It really took the law and the, um, the mandate to um, prompt this kind of change. Whatever happens, the barriers to adding new people, women and people of color to corporate boards, we can assume that they will have fallen to some degree um, and that by having women and people of color on boards, you start this flywheel that then keeps, um, that grows on itself and enables the addition of more and more people from those networks. I've got a couple of questions about mandates because in the UK, that hasn't been the approach. Um, in the UK, it's been about uh, setting voluntary targets and then disclosing why you haven't met them. Uh, essentially in the FTSE 350 in any event. And I just wondered, in your respect, uh, why do you feel that California focused on the mandates rather than the disclosure requirements? I mean, there was, the law here in California is based on fairly robust data showing that companies perform better for shareholders when they have women on their boards. There's some um, academic debate over, is that causal or is it correlative? Do better performing, more sophisticated companies tend to have access to broader networks and therefore move on their own to include women? Or um, does adding having a diverse board actually lead to better performance? The, the great thing about the mandates is that every company, as I said, 30% of companies had no women and now virtually all of them do. So every company, large or small, Russell 3000 down to the smallest um, public company has now had to leap ahead and find the qualified women to add to their boards. Cal but Washington state has a percent requirement, 25% of boards need to be women. And I think they may, I'm not sure what their enforcement mechanism is, but they are the only other state that has, um, California is now up at about 29% of boards are made up of women and Washington state, I think has gotten to the same place. Mm -hmm. I will tell you by not having disclosures, it made tracking our law, let alone enforcing it incredibly difficult because the data didn't exist. And for the follow-on law, AB 979, that focuses on uh, race and ethnicity, there's, it's, you know, at least when we did our first data set in 2020, we were pouring over proxy statements and SEC filings and company websites 
And you can tell for gender by pronouns, you, you know, name, photo, but also pronouns in a bio will tell you what someone's gender is. For, the, uh, for race and ethnicity, you really do need to have disclosure to have any kind of uh, accountability or enforcement of anything. So I think that they go hand in glove. Um, I think that you know our law in California was only possible because institutional investors had been pushing for diversity for their own reasons. So I don't think it's a I don't think it's a one or the other. I think it's you know whatever works in your system and whatever you can make happen, the art of the possible. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, we understand the um, California Partner Project has done focus group studies to learn more about the barriers to bringing more diversity on boards. I'd really love to hear what, as a result of the focus groups, has been learned about the barriers that you've been able to identify um, with a, an eye to considering whether those might resonate in the UK or other jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. Oh, great. Yeah. So these focus groups were, uh, were amazing. We weren't sure what they would yield. And actually, we weren't sure how many people would participate and how candid they would be. Um, but we did promise, you know, it was a, as a safe space. It wasn't going to be recorded or, sh or shared by name. Um, but we brought together about 50 CEOs, investors, uh, board directors, academics, and advocates, uh, and asked them kind of two questions. The first was, give us your elevator pitch for diversity on boards. You're, imagine you have you know, two minutes with a CEO who's never had a woman or a person of color on his board, and you're, you, you wanna tell him why he's missing an opportunity. What would you say? What's the strongest argument? What language do you use? And then after they had spent that time you know, making the case for diversity on boards, we're like, wow, that was really compelling. <laughs> Given that, why did it take a law? Why, why is it still so hard? And what we heard, which was interesting, because we did, um, as I said, about 50 people in like, but six or eight different groups, but there was consensus across those groups. And what it boiled down to insular networks, people go to their, the folks they know in their network, and those tend to be pretty um homogenous and not just that doesn't mean necessarily by race and gender but by by background so these insular networks when you're looking to you're racking your brains who do i know who would be good for the board who can i recommend to my nomination or governance committee um people tend to be limited within their own networks uh, the second was these artificially narrow searches. So you're going beyond your network, you're turning to an executive um, recruiting firm. And you're writing, of course, the criteria for your ideal candidate, what you're looking for on your board, and you're trusting them to be able to go beyond your insular networks. Well, too often, those criteria would be written based on titles, um, such as CEO of a public company has previously served on a public company board. Um, and when you're giving those criteria as a starting point, we don't want to talk to anyone who hasn't done these things. And, and you recognize that most public company CEOs, the vast majority and the large majority of people who have served on public company boards are white men. You have 
an artificially narrow search. You're starting with a pool that might lead you to think there aren't a great number of qualified women or people of color. But if you flip it and instead do a little bit more work and think, well, we're not necessarily looking for a CEO. What are the skills that we're looking for? Do I really want to be at a table of 10 CEOs? Or what are the different perspectives and backgrounds and skills that I want at that table? And if you rewrite your search firm, your criteria, you're going to get a much broader array of people. And actually, in the world in which we live, a very volatile and fluid time, you probably need a, a lot more of an array of skill sets than just that finance and organizational um, expertise. The third thing that rose to the top as a consensus barrier was uh, misperceptions of risk. All these folks talked a lot about risk. It's risky. It just feels risky. Even though you know there are these benefits, you also feel like, well, but my board's working as is and bringing on someone new, change is risky. We're like, wow, but is it? Like we're in Silicon, but we're in the Bay Area where change is like value. That's, we call it innovation. We call it disruption. And it's like the height of achievement. So if you can flip that idea, the risk is not, and, and CEOs would say this themselves, actually the risk is not in doing something new, going outside your immediate network. The, the far greater risk is in homogeneity, in groupthink, in not having people at the table who are questioning assumptions and bringing different perspectives and um, skills and talents. So those were the three barriers that upon further study and discussion really sort of crumbled, really was a, a, were mental barriers. Another one that came up a lot is, I would say just good old fashioned bias um, that women and female and, and people of color candidates just get heightened scrutiny. Um, they just things that may be overlooked or um, not considered in someone that looks like you just comes up for uh, more questioning and scrutiny in um, someone who hasn't been at the table before. That's a harder not to crack, honestly. Well, and not one that, that's limited, I think, to the to the corporate right. board world, but right. in fact, it per pervades many, many, that, that's a whole nother podcast, I <laughs> think. That discussion. One thing I was I was going to note, um, uh, Olivia, in response to your your comments, was uh, on the the difference of perspectives. Um, one of the things I've I've seen in practice and in, in the the work that I do is where you have a diverse voice on the board who will bring a different perspective to things, who will, will be able to look at a, a a question or a decision that a board is making and bring some insight to that 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 the the kind of group think of the conventional or the, you know, the, the folks who might've just come because you know, everybody knows each other uh, from school or something is, is a, is a very different thing. And I think there's, there's an enormous amount of value in that. And I, I, I there are, there are lots of anecdotes about, you know, those kinds of, those kinds of things. One thing that I wanted to pick up on that you alluded to was the, the idea of the role of um, business, parties, institutional investors and investment banks, 
Uh, we've seen some of the big institutional investors like BlackRock have, have been, and State Street have been very vocal about pushing their portfolio companies towards having more diversity on boards, both for women and, and minorities and LGBTQ folks. Uh, Goldman Sachs is um, among the, and one of the leaders in the investment banks who has, has you know, announced that they will not take companies public if they don't have sufficient diversity on the board. How, how do you see those players fitting into the picture of the, the broader movement towards greater diversity on boards? You know, they started the movement, at least here, it was uh, Calsters and CalPERS who were really visionary about it. You know, I, I think no one questions there. I know, you know, we can talk about um, pushback and I don't know if you guys saw PwC just came out with a study or I just saw it yesterday um, that the mm-hmm. share of corporate directors who say specific policies are necessary to make boards more diverse um, increased markedly just in the past year, like really a jump. So the the number saying that no action was necessary to make boards more diverse dropped in half, like 70% in the prior year had said we're good. And I think only a third said that this year. Uh, I, I think that um, institutional investors and that pressure from Goldman and others at NASDAQ, you know, people are less likely to think, oh, they're just doing that to, because they're to be politically correct. I was hearing Carlisle is doing something similar, which I didn't even know about. They're not doing it to get attention. You know, they're kind of a black box that way. So I think it, it makes the case more than, you know, any academic study, like, no, the people who analyze this for a living, this is how they make their money. It is their determination that companies with diverse boards are a safer bet. Um, so I think that's it. Just cannot be undercounted how influential that has been. It's been such a such an important driver, I think. And and and, and thank you for uh, reminding us about Calpers and Calsters because they have been have have been real uh, initiators of this of this movement, looking at it from the standpoint of. of you know the pension funds of the of the state employees, and and they are you know they control a huge swath of the of the market, and I think it's it's really interesting to see how these entities whose whose purpose in life is to gain money for their for their uh, for their funds for for their investors etc. are are focusing on this, and it does yeah. as you say it underscores the idea that this is. That this is good business, and and this is good for good good for reasons other than just the like the the, the fact that it's you know we, in our society we like to make sure everyone has an equitable chance to advance. I was just um, it's so I don't know I know it's a little wonky, but I do I'm so fascinated by this field, and I was just talking to a professor at UC Davis yesterday, and I'm probably going to butcher her name, Afra Afsharapour, who by the way would be fascinating for your podcast. But she's been doing qualitative studies on the value of board diversity. And something she talked about is that governance becomes more formalized, which is really good for risk management. And is so investors appreciate that too. There's less like an offhand conversation because we ran into each other. Some, you know, we're at the same club or golf course or party and we have a you know conversation in a corner and some business gets done. 
that that with a more diverse board, those types of decisions and actions become more, those processes become more formalized. And that probably that's for the best, both in terms of good governance and you know record keeping, but also that decisions are held up to scrutiny and weighed and not um, sort of settled on in a, what's, we've all been through this where something, you have a great idea <laughs> at like nine o'clock talking to a friend that in the light of day and when everybody's like drilling down on, is it really that great? You think, all right, maybe it's not that great. Maybe it wasn't as brilliant as it seemed last night. Um, so that was, it was just interesting that um, concept of diverse boards tend to lead to more formalized governance as, which I think is something that uh, investors appreciate as well. I love that um, analogy. It's, it's like bringing in checks and balances into your own boardroom instead of having board decisions that are perhaps made on the hoof um, because people are in the same network. I think it's also leading to conversations about, well, what is good board governance? And you see um, companies taking up ESG and human uh, capital management and these other notions of sustainability for a corporate culture, not just, you know, the a planet, which is everyone's long-term business interest, right? But even within your own employee retention and what are these other challenges, avoiding the risk of fraud and lawsuits, both of which diminish when you have women on your board, that these are also the purview of a board of directors and that therefore, as I said, not just the people and perspectives, but also the backgrounds and talents and skill sets. It behooves companies to have diversity of those at the board table as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I um, think uh, I don't want to take up too much of anyone else's time, um, but this has been such a fascinating discussion. Olivia, are there any sort of further thoughts you'd like to, you'd like to share? The only thing I would say is we we focus so much on gender, which is our primary focus. But you know, our most recent report was on women of color, and that has been while there has been progress, it has it has really lagged. I think AB nine seventy nine will address that. Um, the Latinas in California, you know, twenty percent of our population is Latina, and at our study time, which was, let's see, it was last May. So I think it was March data, 1% of directors were Latina. And that's just such a huge mismatch wow. between consumers and employees and who, you know, who these companies are serving. So I did hear from a friend and colleague, Esther Aguilera at the Latino Corporate Directors Association that their data show that in the first half of 2021, four times as many Latinos were appointed to California public company boards. That's four times of a pretty small number, but still that's um, great progress. And of those 40% were female or Latina. Um, but it's still, but that, that is, that's lagging and is a, a huge mismatch and um, a missing out mm -hmm. on those skills. That that is a, that is a good point, and I, I, I one thing you mentioned that I think is is so is so important is the idea that the 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 board it, it's beneficial for the board to reflect 
the business and the, the customers of the company that, that, you know, if, if, if a huge chunk of the company's customers are, are members of a minority group or are women, it stands to reason that the board should include folks who are, are part of that, that group because they can speak to that experience and help, help and, and likewise through the leadership of the company. I mean, that, that's how you, that's how you know um, what your, you know, what your ultimate customers are going to be wanting to, to, to purchase. Yeah. And what will matter to them and how, how, you know, as companies are being asked to respond to, to social moments, whether it's from mask mandates to, to, or Black Lives Matter, that you mm-hmm. need to have people who, who get that um, in a personal, in a personal way as part of your decision-making process, or you're, you're just going to be so out of touch with the people you're serving. Yeah, I, as a, my final thoughts on this, the, and given we're sort of 20 months on since Black Lives Matter um, happened in 2020, I think it's really important. Uh, the one thing that uh, came out of that is, uh, unless you listen to other people who are not the same as you, you have no idea how everybody else is feeling. Um, you just cannot assume that everybody's going to make the decisions in the same way that you would. And I think that's, it's great that we're concluding this particular podcast in saying it's not just gender, it's not just race, it's it's a, the intersection of all of these. And you really helpfully set out right at the outset, Olivia, with regards to it, quite often it's background, social diversity as well. So anyway, thank you so much. Thank you. And a very fun morning with the two of you and evening with you, Emma. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. Thank you, everyone. All right. Thanks, Olivia.